This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. This is Tim from Portland, Oregon, and I'm a new donor. I grew up in a fundamental church environment being taught that our way was the right way. After getting married, my wife and I then started to meet followers of Jesus that were outside of the paradigm of what a Jesus follower, quote, should be. Eventually, we started to realize that actually following Jesus is pretty simple. Love God and love neighbor, just like he told us to do 2,000 years ago. I eventually found this podcast, and it quickly has become one of the staple resources to help me deprogram my closed-minded thinking that I grew up with. So thanks to you, Tim, this team, and to all of you out there on your unique faith journey. Hold on to Jesus, his love, and love for neighbor. Have a great day. Oh, boy, friends. Um, I'm pretty emotional. I'm not going to lie. This was, man, this was a powerful interview. Um I'm not even sure where to start. I, I just got off the phone with Daniel and Yusuf. They are two Christians. They're Palestinian. They're actually scholars of all kinds of amazing things. And I brought them on to talk about, again, what's happening in Palestine, what's happening between Israel and Hamas, and how do we think about this stuff? And I'm just really freaking humbled, and I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that evangelicalism in America has stifled our Christian imagination and has I'm just going to be honest, has just been so complicit in warmongering. Like you'll understand more after this discussion happens, but man, this was just such a powerful interview. Listen, all the caveats, and we we make this throughout. We're not talking about Jewish people as a whole. We're not talking about that people who are Jewish don't have a right to exist. This is not about anti-Semitism. And again, we explain the nuance here. But my gosh, like Daniel and Yusuf are, are, first off, they're incredibly knowledgeable. They're brilliant. And they they just shoot straight. Like they just tell it like it is. And this was such a, I'm going to use an evangelical term here, but a convicting episode for a lot of reasons. And I, I hope that you really listen closely to this one. There's a lot of information here, a lot of history, a lot of, of the story about how Hamas came to be, um, a lot of thinking about colonization and what it means to be under colonized rule. And it's just, it's thinking about things 
beyond the American evangelical left or right binary. And that's really important. It just is. If we're going to be new evangelicals, let me just be honest with you, friends. There's a reason why I don't use the term progressive super often or and why we don't use that term publicly. Like You're not going to find on our website, we're progressive because I I get in out of out of the right left binary we find ourselves in in America. I get why we are more progressive in how we think, but progressive still has its own problems. Democratic, you know, candidates still have their own problems. Um, and this conversation highlights the need for like something that kind of transcends that left right bubble because they have their own issues that 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 we have to deal with, especially as Christians and people who are trying to find better ways forward in our faith. And what makes for me Daniel and Yusuf so powerful is that. They are giving us a more global perspective about Christian thought. And it turns out as they talk, you realize how backwards so much of our American Christian identity actually is and how much more undoing there is, but also how much more of a beautiful Christian imagination and also conviction way beyond the I don't curse because I'm a good Christian, but I'm talking about real conviction. Like, yeah, I just watched a bomb kill my friend. And I still don't believe that violence is is the right answer in retaliation, that kind of conviction. So this conversation, just buckle up, friends, just buckle up for it. It is powerful. It is humbling. Man, it's just powerful. This is the reason conversations like this are what has inspired Project Amplify. Like, hard stop. Voices like Yusuf's and like Daniel's that you probably have never heard of until you heard this podcast episode. I'm like, why aren't their voices more out there? Why aren't these narratives being out there, uh, being pushed out there on social media? Why aren't millions of people hearing their perspective? This is why we developed Project Amplify. To be, it's, it's taking our platform that has quite the reach and saying, great, now, Daniel, let's do some content with you and get your voice out there. Yusuf, you are brilliant on this. Let's get your voice out there on social media. That's what this is all about. This is why we do these interviews. And Project Amplify is all about building that to another level of reach to reach new people. So anyway, I'll stop ranting there. But yeah, friends, we'd love your feedback. You can send me an email, info. Um, yeah, you can do info or podcast at the newevangelicals.com. Um, if you want to support the show, you know how to do it. You can donate. Donations make these conversations possible, like hard stop. Um, and you can also share the episode with a friend and say, hey, listen to this. Before you start saying, well, Israel is justified in carpet bombing civilians. Maybe listen to this episode and really ask yourself, is that really the binary here? Is that what this is like? Is this really the way forward? So yeah, I'm a little emotional if you can't tell on this one, friends, but this is a powerful episode. So here it is. Here's my interview. Thanks for listening. Talk to you all next time. All right, Daniel and Yusuf, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Daniel, you've been on the podcast before. Uh, in fact, this is our, now our third time doing something public mm-hmm. on the in, uh, New Evangelicals platform. We did a live a long time ago, a couple of years ago now. We reconnected uh, when everything mm-hmm. happened between right. Hamas and Israel. And then we did a podcast together, which is now our second highest downloaded episode ever. Um, and... Um, I'm happy to have you back on. And you brought someone that you know, Yusuf, on the podcast. Now, I discovered Yusuf friends on – is it both of your podcasts that you guys are doing together? It's it's mine and some friends, but Yusuf was our first guest. So he's like, you know, 
an important figure of our podcast. Yeah. Listen, let me just be very frank. I have a hard time listening to podcasts because I podcast for a living. And I got through that whole thing. I could not stop. I was like, whoa, this is unbelievable. Wow. So I reached out to Daniel and said, oh my God, can I get you and you sit back on the uh, on the podcast to talk about about what's happening right now uh, between um, you know the Palestinian people and Israel? And you said, yes. So here we are. So Yusuf, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, folks, if you want to listen to all of Daniel's story, you can listen to it. I think it's episode like 178. But just for the sake of this conversation, Daniel, can you give a brief introduction to yourself? And then we'll go over to you, Yusuf, as well. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I'm kind of I'm happy to be with you all the time. I'm happy to have conversations. But I'm, it's just kind of annoying and frustrating to me that every time I come here, it's to talk about war, to talk about like violence in Palestine and Gaza. And it's kind of unfortunate that um, Palestinians, Palestinian Christians come to the attention of people in the West whenever there's like bloodshed. Whenever like we don't, whenever there's Palestinians are not being killed, like we're, we're, we're invisible, we don't exist really in how people think about the Middle East. But we're only, we're only brought here because, you know, something bad is happening. Hmm. I think we need to have these conversations and I'm very grateful for you, Tim, of course, for giving us that space. So really thank you and for continuing this conversation because I know how like people's kind of attention spans usually tend to, tend to be it's like, okay, well, we dealt with this in last month. Okay, let's move on to other American issues. I think I think what you're doing, Tim, is important that this is an issue that is fundamentally uh, significant to the American church, to the American uh, conversation, political conversation. So thank you for keeping this conversation going. Um, I introduced myself in the last, in the last episode, but um, yeah, I'm from, from the West Bank, from Bethlehem. I was born in Jerusalem. My family is from the town of Beit Sahur, which is the biblical shepherd's field. It's a small town by Bethlehem. Uh, my family has been in that area for generations. Uh, grew up in an Orthodox family. My dad became uh, accepted Christ and became basically a, a, an evangelical believer, eventually became a Baptist pastor. So I grew up as a pastor's kid in Beit Sahur within the Bethlehem area. And then uh, lived a lot of my time in Palestine and also in the U.S. I was raised briefly in the U.S. and I and have been living back and forth between Palestine and <clears throat> and the U.S. Right now, I'm at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, finishing my PhD work on late antique history, the Quran, and biblical literature from the seventh and fifth centuries, fifth and sixth and seventh centuries. And yeah, since the war has begun kind of just been heavily involved in, in advocacy work and, and writing. Yusuf and myself are the co-authors of a document that was written by Palestinian theologians, um, a call to repentance, we called it, kind of challenging the, the American church, the church in the West, to reconsider its, I think, violent discourse about Palestine and to reckon with, with its own legacy of violence and war. And to repent, kind of following the, the prophetical tradition, to repent of evil and to pursue truth and justice and peace, especially in in in, in Palestine and Israel. Yusuf and I are good friends. We we used to Yusuf still teaches there, but we I used to teach at Bethlehem Bible College. We met, I think, in 2017, I think, Yusuf, or 2016, 2017. And then oh 18. Okay, that's when you came back from your master's graduate studies so yeah i've been friends since then and we did a lot of work together in the last uh, few years so anyway thank you tim and really good good to be back with you here of course yusuf 
Uh, yes, my name is Yusuf Jakhuri, which min literally means Joseph the priest. I come from uh, a family that has a long history, roughly 900 years in the priesthood of the Eastern Orthodox Church in Palestine. Wow. Uh, I was uh, I was born to a Christian Orthodox family in the old city of Gaza. Uh, in fact, our house, our part of the house was built the same time of the church at the beginning of the fifth century. Wow. Uh, so some people, when they ask me, when converted to Christianity, I told them, actually, my bedroom was built in the fifth century. Oh. Wow. <laughs> um, so I come from Orthodox family. I went to a Catholic school and later for my uh, bachelor studies, I did it at uh, an evangelical Bible college in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Bible College. I did my Master's of Divinity in New York uh, at the Alliance Theological Seminary. And currently I'm finishing up my doctorate, completed my dissertation, got it approved on the Kingdom of God and Empires. And in my research, I investigate how actually the colonial regime of Israel, post-1948 Israel, is very similar to Rome in the first century and how the experiences of Palestinian Christians in 21st century resembles those of the first century when Jesus proclaimed the kingdom for the people who are suffering under the brutality of the empire. Mm. Um, that's what I do. I teach at Bethlehem Bible College full-time as a lecturer in biblical studies, but I'm also activist. Uh, it's For me, the gospel is not only a word to read, but a life to live and to proclaim through not only a word, but also action to the entire world. Hmm. Wow. So Yusuf, you, how long did you live in Gaza for? Uh, I lived 21 years of my life in Gaza. Wow. I'm now 37 and I moved to Bethlehem uh, in 2007. Still have my family, my parents, my sisters, two of my sisters uh, back in Gaza. Hmm. Um, could you kind of give the audience out there kind of a glimpse of what was life in Gaza like before the current war? Like what, what was it like to live in Gaza? What was it like being a Palestinian in Gaza, et cetera? Just kind of give us a snapshot. Wow. Uh, this is a very difficult question because what you mm. will hear might sound unrealistic, but it is part of the real life of Palestinians, Christians and Muslim alike in Gaza. And when people talk about Gaza as a concentration camp, and here these are not my words, uh, these are words of... Uh, Israeli scholars, such as, um, for example, Ruch Kimberling, who stated, uh, I think, about 20 years earlier, that Gaza is the biggest concentration camp in the world. And later, we see many other scholars, Israeli scholars and Palestinians, are describing Gaza since 2006 as a concentration camp, where you have more than 2.1 million people uh, put into blockade with no space to grow, to expand, but also to leave. Uh, so Gaza is only 141 square mile uh, for my American friends and 365 kilometers for the rest of the world. Thank you for converting that for us because we'd be all in our heads trying to figure that out. So thank you. <laughs> um, so Gaza is a very small piece of land on the Mediterranean Sea mm. with the highest density uh, of population uh, if you, I'm not good at mathematics, 
biblical studies, what I do. <laughs> but you can measure it out. And many studies say <laughs> that it has actually the highest density uh, globally. And for people in Gaza since 2006, they were placed under this Israeli blockade, uh, which Israel controls all the borders, con uh, including the aerial space and uh, the Mediterranean coast. So literally, people are trapped in Gaza Strip, and Israel allows whatever it likes to Gaza, and only allow a very limited number of people to leave Gaza, even those who have terminal diseases and uh, need very specific uh, health care. They need to leave to the West Bank, to Jerusalem, or even to um, the occupied territories of 1948, or even to Egypt. And in order to do that, they need an Israeli approval. And you will be surprised that almost 80% of the people get this approved or their uh, a combining a family member get disapproved for permission. So they are left to die uh, in Gaza Strip. About 95% of water in Gaza uh, during the last 18, 17 years is undrinkable. Uh, and the uh, 5% left uh, goes uh, through multiple procedures in order to purify the water to make it consumable for human beings. And my family, for example, uh, used to fill gallons of water, 20 liters gallon of water for their personal consumption because they cannot drink from the tap water. About wow. four to six hours of electricity a day. So I remember my mother would wake up around 3, 4 a.m. because the electricity got connected and, and they can wash uh, their clothes or um, turn on uh, the heater in order to, uh, to heat water, to take a shower or something like that. The unemployment rate uh, is a staggering because I remember when my American friends say, oh, um, unemployment rate is 6%, 5%. In Gaza, it reached 70% before uh, October. 70%. Wow. 70%. 70%. Yes. Wow. Yes. Uh, and the lowest rate in the last 20 years, I think it was 49 or 47%. Wow. So imagine that people live on the bare minimum, uh, literally relying on uh, support from the UNRWA or from other uh, humanitarian organizations, including, for example, uh, the Shepherd Society of Bethlehem Bible College that tries to provide support for families in need in Gaza. And by the way, 70% of Gaza population are Palestinian refugees who were displaced from their hometowns in 1948. Mm. So only 30% of Gazan population are, in fact, people who lived in Gaza for centuries. Mm. Wow. Um, I want to, I have a question about this, right? Because you are someone who, like you said, you were in Gaza for 21 years, but you, I guess I'm assuming you got permission by the Israeli government to actually leave to go study, but you were, I guess, one of the lucky ones then, right? Cause you said 80% of people who request to, to leave get denied, but you were able to get through. Uh, that's true. So before 2007, 2008, a majority of Christians in Gaza were granted permission to visit the holy sites in Jerusalem and uh, Bethlehem during Christmas and Easter only. 
And most of the time, actually, the Israeli military would only grant few members of a family in order to keep some members behind to guarantee that those who leave will return to their family. Wow. Um, I was one of the lucky, the few lucky people who got uh, permission in order to go to the West Bank. And I was a legal alien, can you consider that, uh, undocumented uh, Palestinian in the Palestinian territory according to the Israeli military law because I stayed behind mm. after the expiration of my permission. And for five years, I couldn't change my home address from Bethlehem to, uh, from Gaza to Bethlehem. Imagine, I lived in the States for three years. I lived in New York and I lived in a small town called Nyack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know Nyack. There's a college up there. Yes, I, I, I lived there for three years. It's a wonderful okay. place. Um, and uh, you get to experience also the liberty of living in the States, the privilege. So in order just mm -hmm. to change my address from Nyack to a different town or, or even a state, it takes like five, ten minutes, Right. Yeah. And it's mostly mm -hmm. an online procedure. Yes. However, for me as a Palestinian from Gaza to move to the West Bank, I need to apply for a change of address is through the Israeli military. And the Israeli military had a waiting list for almost people for 20 years. So people who wow. couldn't change their address for 20 years. And I was one of the lucky people who got a change of address in, in five years. Wow. And keep in mind, wow. we are talking about a, like um, a Palestinian territory to a Palestinian territory. And it shows you right. the, uh, the sophistication of the Israeli colonization of the Palestinian lives, that every small piece of your life is actually totally controlled by the Israeli military. Hmm. Hmm. Um, to, to, expand, oh, uh, sorry, no, to, to expand on this idea... Yes. Um, this is a system of uh, divide and conquer that Israel has perfected in in Palestine or in the whole historic land, what is called Palestine, Israel, the Holy Land, where you have an indigenous population, the majority of the people. And we talked about the history, you and I, in the last yes. episode. So we don't have to, we don't have to revisit that right sure. now. But you have a, an indigenous population, Muslim, Christian, Jewish in the land. And then you come and kind of... Yusuf talks about this a lot, the colonial legacy of Israel, and we as Palestinians can understand Israel as not just a normal state, but a state that is built on the colonization of the land and the people of that land, similar to the experience of Native Americans and so on. So then you come to the land and you want to establish what is what they called a, a Jewish homeland. So by definition, if you have some natives who are not Jewish, they ha you have to deal with them in a way that gives you what you want to have, which is a Jewish majority or Jewish control. So how do you do it? In 48, I talked about this briefly, what is called the ethnic cleansing mm -hmm. or what Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe 48, where the majority of the Palestinians at the time around 700,000 become refugees. They're kicked out of their homeland into refugee camps. Uh, Yusuf mentioned some of them went to Gaza, some went to the West Bank, and most of them went overseas to or to different places like Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, the biggest you know, population of refugees is in Jordan, for example. So then, but then we have annoying people like myself and Yusuf who still remained in the land, right? So you still have a minority. The majority has become a minority. So how do you control this minority and make sure that you retain that ethno-religious Jewish supremacist 
identity of the new state of Israel, you divide and conquer. So you put the Palestinian refugees into refugee camps and you keep them stuck there. You keep the Palestinians in the West Bank in uh, West Bank and you have this military occupation over them with the settlements and the checkpoints and the wall. And that's how you keep them in check and in control. So if you live, if I want to leave Bethlehem and go to Hebron, for example, to the south, I go through roads controlled by, by the Israeli military and I have to cross through checkpoints that are controlled by the Israeli military. Yeah. So that's a system for me that is different, for example, than the system in Gaza, which you just have a blockade a concentration camp-esque reality where everyone is trapped inside, but then you have your drones and your cameras and your machine guns pointed at them. You control them from land, water, and air, and you have them in control. And then you have the Palestinians in Jerusalem, you know, East Jerusalem, who are part of the occupation, but they are not really occupied per se, per se in the, in the, through the military system, but they're going to become like residents. They have some more freedom of movement, but they're still not citizens of the state of Israel, but they're contained in a different system. And then you have the Palestinian citizens of Israel who eventually, in, I think in 65, 66, became full Israeli citizens. But, you know, there's a different status, second and second class, third class citizens. And that's kind of the division of the Palestinians into these different legal military um, kind of regimes that keep them in, under control. So, you know, like to, to compare our reality to like a ghetto reality or like a what is called a Bantustan reality where you have the black populations of South Africa kind of contained in these bubbles. Uh, one well-known uh, Palestinian theologian, Mitri Rahib, kind of give the example of the Swiss cheese. Mm. You know, that Israel has the cheese and we have the pockets of the Palestinians controlled and managed and tolerated Unless you know people like Hamas do something about it, they're tolerated within those holes in that in that mm. cheese. But then the whole slice is controlled by Israel. Mm. And and so the example that uh, Yusuf is given is part of that reality. You cannot leave what that hole into the, move from one concentration camp to the other concentration camp. If you have to do this, then we're going to make your life miserable to make it difficult for you. Mm. And that's kind of this is just a basic kind of glimpse of what life is like, which is just discussing the basic freedom of movement <laughs> that Palestinians, indigenous to the land, yeah. do not have that freedom of movement that you, Tim, and anyone else who comes to the land as a tourist would have. Right. You can just drive throughout. You can do whatever you want. Especially right. if you're if you're the Jewish, like if you're an Israeli citizen, then of course you're the master of the land. Yeah. Um, and that kind of that tiered system of control and domination really can impact the whole structure of power and of politics in Palestine, Israel. I'm going to put this in my in my intro for the show, but I'm going to say it again here. Um, you are we are allowed and need to critique what the nation state of Israel is doing, and that is not anti-Semitic in nature. Okay, there's a difference between saying Jews don't have a right to exist versus what the state of a nation is doing to a different people group. Okay, audience. So I know for some of us out there who, and I'm one of them, right? I mean, I grew up very ingrained since I was a child that we always fight for Israel because for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's Christian Zionism or maybe because we don't want to be anti-Semitic, right? So so I, I can feel how some of us might say, ooh, I, I felt uncomfortable here or there. I understand that, friends. I really do. But we're not accusing the entire Jewish 
population, uh, you know, of being uh, this thing. We're talking about really what's happening by a nation state as they are having another people group underneath of their thumb. So if it helps you think about it like this, it's not so much about the religion more than it's about what's actually being done by a certain people group. All right. I just want to put that out there for the audience to know. Well, I have a couple questions about this and I appreciate both of you sharing. This is really helpful, I think, for us to get our, our heads around it. One of my obvious questions is, why would Israel do this? Like, like, okay, so Israel is here. They they are splitting the Palestinian people into this the, the, these Swiss cheese pockets that you described. Gaza is a concentration camp. The Bethlehem area is not as bad, but still bad. Some people can become citizens of Israel as Palestinians. So, like, what what is the why behind Israel? Like. In particular, with the Gaza Strip, why is the Gaza Strip so siphoned off compared to other places? Help me help the audience understand that because I'm like, are they just cruel? Like, is the government just you know almost like you know Doctor Doctor Evil? Like you know in in, in their in their uh, supervillain lounge? Like, I just want to dominate the world. What is going on that would lead uh, authorities to say this is the right decision to essentially create a concentration camp and keep people inside of it? Yusuf, want to start with you? Uh, yes, this is an excellent question. And because to answer it, I think, adequately, we have to go through a little bit of history. Because from the early days of Zionism and the Zionist project in Palestine, the plan was to erase the Palestinian indigenous population from the land, from the river to the sea. Uh, that includes Gaza, the West Bank, and the rest of historical Palestine. However, we can see throughout history that they failed to do so. And the way in order to manage the remaining population, in order to depopulate, that's the American preferred terminology, depopulate, but in fact, in ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian uh, who remained in Palestine is to push them out of the country. And one of the ways, what we have seen in Gaza for the last 20 years, just keeping them in the concentration camp, Many of the people cannot bear living there, so they will leave. And I can tell you, 90% of my friends who grew up in Gaza with me, we went to school together, they left Gaza Strip about 15 or 10 years ago because they want to live uh, and look for a better future. And it's happening all over uh, the land. Uh, so one of the methods that Israel keeps the land and living in the land is unbearable to people to leave. And now we are seeing it more uh, in a genocidal language and act on the ground when the Israelis are pushing the Palestinian people from their hometowns in the north of Gaza and Gaza City to the south in order for them to actually, again, depopulate Gaza and send the Gazans to Sinai. And this is not a fiction uh, that we only uh, talk about here. There are evidence from the Israeli archives speaks about the ethnic cleansing plan from the early 1920s and Ilan Pepe's book, uh, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. I think it's one of the greatest resources to start with uh, because it speaks about the plan Dalit and this plan Dalit was actually uh, actually implemented by the Zionist militias who killed many Palestinians and including actually uh, my maternal part of the family that was displaced in 1948 and remains in refugee camps or uh, refugees who cannot return back home. Hmm. 
And now my family is one of the, those who are being pushed out of Gaza. So this is one of the methods. Um, in fact, just to repeat for emphasis from the beginning, the Israeli Zionist macro plan is just to erase the Palestinian existence. Um, I have one question of clarification here, just so me and the audience fully understand what you're saying. I know that a couple minutes ago, you mentioned how difficult it is to leave Gaza. You mentioned that about 80% of the of, of um, requests to leave are, are not granted. But you mentioned that about 90% of your friends were able to leave. Are you talking about they were smuggled out or, or like, how does that... I, I, help me understand that part. Like, are they able to leave or are they not? Is it, you know, are they trying to tunnel out? What does that mean? No, uh, they mostly lifted through Egypt. So okay. you're familiar that the southern border of Gaza is between Gaza and Egypt. Mm -hmm. And for certain times of the year, with a special uh, coordination, actually, with the Israelis and the Egyptians, people can travel through uh border crossing and you can travel overseas. Gotcha. That That's helpful clarification. Uh, and I appreciate that. Daniel, do you want to add on to that? Yeah. And, and if there's any movement of Palestinians from Gaza to the West Bank, that would be from the Northern crossing called, called the Eretz crossing in the North of the Gaza Strip. And that would be done in coordination with, with, um, with Israel. Yeah, but the the main point about like the divide and conquer and kind of the domination of the the Palestinians and you you ask the question why Tim that is the yeah. case, uh, we're saying as Palestinians as indigenous populations that this is a system of colonization, mm -hmm. and it is not, it is not dissimilar from the colonization of. Turtle Island to make it into the United States of America and Canada. Like it's not the. It, this is a very common phenomenon in in history of how you take over land, rename it, push the people out, put them in concentration camps, put them in reservations, mm. and then force them to sign treaties with you. You know, like that's. I think for us, um, this is like kind of what is called the post-colonial or the anti-colonial critique that we as indigenous populations see this as an extension of Western colonization of native peoples, whether in Africa, in India and Asia, in, in Latin America and so on. I mean, this is so this is like a mm. this is for us a very clear connection that we're making with with native peoples throughout the world. Mostly brown people, right? Yeah. Mostly black and brown. Right. People. Um and now, now, if you ask me, like, what does Israel say? Of course, Israel is, is not going to say that. Like, no one wants to say, well, I'm the colonialist anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, they used right. to use that language. Like, uh, there's, for example, uh, Jabotinsky, a well-known, like, early Zionist thinker. He wrote this article, The Iron Wall. People can look it up and read it. And he just specifically talks about, we're going to colonize Palestine, and we're going to face rejection by the natives. Like, he, they knew this was a project. But now colonization as a term just fell out of favor eventually, and so that they're not using that language anymore. Mm. But fundamentally, it is that um, discourse that we use to analyze what's happening. Um, and also, just want to make a point, because you mentioned this thing about the Jewish identity. Like It, it has nothing to do with anything. For, for us as Palestinians, colonization is not really about a certain identity. It's, it's, a, it's a political ideology yeah. that you use to dehumanize people. Right? Christians, I mean, excelled at that, yes. right? But I'm not saying because they're Christians, therefore they are co colonizers. Right, We're right. saying that they use their history, they use their 
literature. They use their trauma and hurt and abuse. I mean, the, the pilgrims were people who were oppressed and abused in Europe. And But then for somehow, for some reason, they developed that very oppressive slash racist ideology that made it okay and acceptable for them to dehumanize the native, make them into the savage who can be killed and can be pushed and, you know, he can take the land from them. So it's a similar discourse that has nothing to do with religion. Now, in this specific case, we are stuck with people who are saying this is a Jewish homeland, this is, we are the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and they use the Bible to justify all of this. So we have to deal with the Jewish element and how the Jewish identity plays a role here and the legacy of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and and also Christian Zionism in Europe. That was, and, and you dealt with this, Tim, in your podcast, the anti-Semitic tropes of Christian Zionism in the 19th century that really kind of pushed and led to the creation of Jewish Zionism. Right. That is part of biblical readings and anti-Semitism in Europe. And, you know, how do we get rid of the Jews? Well, let's put them in the Holy Land. Let's take them out of here anyway. Right. So that is part of it. But this is not an essential part to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It plays a role and we have to be critical and we have to reflect on it. But this is not monopolized by any people, you know, or religious group. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And I think, you know, frankly, we're watching, I'm watching a lot in the U.S. now. I'm watching far-right politicians start to repeat some of those anti-Semitic tropes. You know, I, I'm Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA uh, accused uh, Jewish money of indoctrinating children of the West into Marxism. And I'm like, oh my God, like we've heard that before. That does not end well, you know? And so I think for, you know, I think one of the hardest things that I've, I'm still unlearning it. You know, one, one of the problems of, about being a content creator that is so wide is that you become kind of the jack of all trades, master of none. And one thing I'm realizing is how I still treat people groups so monolithically, right? So I just kind of assume that like, it's all just one thing. So if it's anti-Semitic here, uh, therefore critiquing Israel is also therefore anti-Semitic. And I'm learning that there's so much nuance and it's just not that black and white and there's different types of Judaism and how they fight with each other, just like Christianity, right? I can see the nuance of Christianity, no problem. I can say, oh, that's Christian nationalism. That's not what all Christians believe. But for some reason, I have this hard time of thinking that way about other types of people or other types of religious you know, movements. So I think what you said, Daniel, is really helpful for the audience to start separating the two where they can obviously support, especially in America, uh, folks who are really a minority group, which is Jewish people. And and hearing people like Charlie Kirk echo sentiments that are incredibly harmful for them while also saying, right. okay, we get that, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time. What the nation state of Israel is doing and what they have been doing is really problematic. And we have to find ways to really, you know, stand with the ones who are oppressed. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, okay, let, let's keep moving here. This is very Again, enlightening. It's very helpful. Um, I think one of the I'll tell you what what I heard, I think, growing up, uh, why Israel has done what, what, what they've been doing. And that's because um, there are I, 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 here's how I heard it. I think I, I don't think people meant it this way, but essentially what I heard was, well, the Palestinians want to kill all Jews. That's why, hmm. you know, Israel had to do this because uh, Palestinians are just really evil people who just are, they can't stop throwing rockets over the wall. And, you know, they want to kill every single Jewish person that exists all over the planet. So we need to stand with, 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 with Israel because Israel is actually the one under attack and the Palestinians are the ones who are actually doing the attacking. Um, and then, of course, when Hamas attacked on the 7th, right, uh, they, they did some horrible, terrible things to uh, killing civilians, etc. And so that that situation only reinforces that broad trope that therefore all Pal right. Palestinians are actually trying to erase all Jews. 
so that's how I heard it talked about. You know, what is your response when you hear that stuff? I'm sure you've heard that stuff. You both have been in America for uh, you're still in America, Daniel. Um, what, when you hear that, what what is the response you have in your mind? Um, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, this is just a very again. This is an anti-colonial critique. Yep. Uh, this is just classic racism and dehumanization of people. Mm. How do you create the enemy that has no value, no humanity? You just, you know, paint them with a white brush and give them some kind of traits. You know, they're not educated. They are not Christians. They're not white. They're not women. They're not male. You know, like just anyone. Like how how can you do? I mean, this is something you do a lot, Tim. Right? You work with this kind of analysis. It's like so. Yeah. So how do you how do you justify making uh, African people slaves? Yeah. Well. Fill in the blank. So it's it's the same. It's the same way. And and there's a long legacy of what is called Orientalism of how the West viewed uh, Arabs and Muslims, mm-hmm. and mostly through this kind of enlight- in, in, enlightenment uh, idea of we are the educated, we are the enlightened folks, and we're gonna go spread the gospel to those to the dark continents of Africa, to those savages in tents and who ride on camels and who are not educated, who are not enlightened. So I think there's a lot of that legacy yeah. and a lot of the tropes that you hear today about Muslims, especially like especially right now with the Republican debates, like I, I can't believe I'm like watching them. But it's a very, very common like trope about those people, about the Muslims, about the violent people. You can't trust them. So it's the same. I've been saying it's a consistent Western, mostly Christian discourse that sees where the where mostly Christian, white European, Western Christians see themselves as the good guys, and everyone who doesn't look like us, doesn't speak like us, doesn't have, you know, our cultural identities, these are a problem. And you know, think of like how you think about natives, how you think about immigrants who are coming in illegally or legally. It's the same discourse that they don't they don't fit here. They need to leave. Um, now, how to tie this with Hamas? Not so. There's that anti-colonial critique that we're kind of aware of, and it informs how people think about Hamas. Yes. So Hamas, as as a, as a militant group that believes in armed struggle. So this is an idea that if you're an oppressed person, you have the right to defend yourself against the oppressor. That are people who are not free have the right to defend themselves. So this is kind of where they start from. Think of, and I think I gave this example in our last conversation, think of Americans who believe we need to form militias to defend ourselves from the tyranny of the government. That's right. We have a right, there's a Second Amendment right, to carry arms, to defend ourselves, and that right should never be infringed upon. We have a right to defend ourselves from the tyranny of the government. How do you maintain a free country by a, by owning AK-47s? Um some people believe that we have a right to defend ourselves against the oppression and and, and violence and killing of our people, of our children, of our yeah. families for 75 years. Mm-hmm. This is not just October 7th, not just in the last few weeks. This is a long legacy of dehumanization that has made is made it that has made it easy for the for Israel to kill and shoot any Palestinian at the pretext oh they're violent or oh, they're Muslim or oh, they're you know they're aggressive you know so if you like two two weeks ago we saw we saw footage of a kid in was it Janine Yusuf who was like in the in the streets and then a sniper shot him and I, killed I, him. I like, saw that the, video we saw it was the horrible and but then does he matter? Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. like, but then, but then what about his brother who's going to grow up and he wants to avenge his brother and like, you know what? I'm going to defend myself from the tyranny of this government and I'm going to hold, hold a machine yeah. gun and I'm, and I'm going to do something like terrible. I'm going to, you know, stab a soldier. So, 
So there is an entrenched what is called structural violence, and we need to be aware of this. This is a violence that you don't really see, that is not really caught by the camera. Right. It's, a, it's a violence that exists in society that has been normalized by those who act upon this violence, the perpetrator, but also normalized by the victim who's not aware of that violence against yeah. them. It's... It's a violence that you don't see in cameras. You don't, you don't see racism. You don't see Jim Crow. You know, there's nothing wrong with a black person sitting in the back. But only when the Black Panthers and others use violence, oh, now we're talking about violence. Yes. But we're not willing to analyze the structural violence, the, the systemic racism that existed in Jim Crow America or existed in any other kind of systems of racism and of oppression and violence. Yeah. And that's kind of what, I mean, that is kind of fundamentally our kind of also Christian critique that we're saying, you know, the, the idea that all of us are broken and sinful and we carry this kind of this inherited brokenness. And we can talk about original sin and what that means. And I think we need to be critical of some formulations. Of it. But <laughs> yeah, the idea is agree. that the world is, yeah, that, but the, the, world, the idea is that the world is broken. And it's, it's, it's a world that can be redeemed. It's a redeemable world. And that has to be redeemed. Um, so, but then how can you redeem a world if you can't understand its brokenness and if you're unwilling to deal with unbrokenness in, in the world? And, and, and so if for us to understand what the problem is, we cannot just put a Band-Aid on it and just, oh, look, there's, you know, these, there's this like, you know, a, a scar in this body or there's like something on the surface that we have to address, but you're, you're ignoring what's underneath the, the surface. Level. Yeah. And we're saying that that's structural violence, as in the U.S., when we have these conversations about systemic racism, is, the, is what we need to address here to make sense of Hamas. Right. And to make sense of militant resistance and those who believe in armed struggle. And if you do not do that, especially if you do not want to do this, so what is Hamas? What are Muslims? They're savages, they're terrorists, they're unhuman, and they're dehumanized, and therefore it is legitimate to oppress them, to push them out, to kill them, to kill their kids, to kill their wives, because none of them are human. And I think that's the point I made in our last conversation, yeah. Tim, yeah. that by extension, it's not just that Hamas is violent and evil and savages and they deserve to be killed, no due process, no analysis, no critical reflection on our own complicity in causing, leading ex to extremism, any Palestinian is also uh, subhuman. We, our story, our history, our trauma don't, don't really matter. You kill a kid in Jenin, not in the West, not in Gaza, in the, in the West Bank, doesn't really matter. You know, 300 Palestinians were killed before October 7th in the West Bank, not where Hamas exists, in the West Bank, but those do not matter. But then suddenly if Hamas does something about it, oh, wow, they're bad people. They're terrorists. Let's exterminate right. them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to hand over to you in a second here, Yusuf, so you can say what uh, and kind of, you know, uh, riff off of that. But, um, you know, audience out there, I, I shared this on, uh, on our Instagram stories uh, earlier in the week. And I, I pretty much said, like, for a second, put yourself in those shoes. You know, I live in New Jersey, a very small state. I live in a small town. If my town was completely cut off, and a rivaling a rivalry state, we can say, totally, you know, embargoed my my state. I couldn't get access to healthcare. I couldn't find work. And I'm watching for years, not just a one time thing, but for years, I'm watching my family, maybe my own kids, killed for whatever reason. And this was part of the legacy I was born into. You don't think it wouldn't radicalize me? I'm just saying, like, you don't think I would? I would if I watch if I yeah, held yeah. the body 
of my three-year-old, and I've seen plenty of these videos, right? And I held the body of my three-year-old who, who, who was killed by a bomb or by a sniper. Even as a Christian who likes to hold to the ideal of nonviolence, you're telling me I would not have serious rage and think about taking retaliation? I honestly, right? And so I, I agree with you, uh, Daniel. It seems like how this works is there's a whole kind of structure built in place where first you start by making the other um, um, less than you, right? Your superior, your intellect, your values, your culture. Uh, you know, you got you get it. But these other mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. they're just stuck back in time. They're not intelligent. They're maybe we use words like primitive, right? So you already start kind of mm-hmm. building this divide between us and them and our values versus theirs. And then you have a whole media complex. And folks, this is not a right or left thing. This is just a media complex thing. Okay. This is Hollywood. This is all of that. That that fuels this narrative that they're primitive over there. They resort to violence really quickly. They're, you know, really on a hair trigger. And so really maybe they're not, they're not as human or as sophisticated as we are, right? And then you start thinking about that way. So that, that's already deep-seated. And then you see the selective, oh, Hamas attack, which again, I know, Daniel, Daniel, you made this so clear. I'm going to say it again. We are not justifying or saying it was good. We're not celebrating what happened. People died. Civilians died. Women died. Mm-hmm. That, that, mm-hmm. All the caveats, right? But we see that happen, and then boom, right in front of our eyes with no context, no history, already primed to think about people who are brown in the Middle East as less than human. Look at these, look at these terrorists. Well, we need right. to retaliate. And then here we are right. now, right? What are we? Um, it's it's December 7th as, as of this recording. We're what, 60 days in and 17,000 Palestinians are dead. Most are under 18. I listen, I I don't have family in Gaza, okay? Obviously. I have wept way too many times seeing things mm. on my Instagram channel that I cannot unsee of children, mm. of of infants, of things that are just what we would describe as hell on earth. And somehow I'm supposed to say, well, it's if only Hamas would release the hostages, hostages. Is, is that really the solution here? Like if they release the hostages, what the bombing just stops? I don't think that, that that's what's happening. And at what point and I, I posed this question on threads the other day, I said, I said, at what point do we say, OK, you've killed enough kids. Now it's unjust. I just want to know. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care what government you are. I don't right. care if you're an American government. I don't care who you are as the government. At what point is carpet bombing civilian populated areas, killing thousands of children? At what point is that justified? And then at what number does it become unjustifiable? So I'm sorry to rant there, but I want the audience to right. really hear that because there's a whole system that goes into the, the, the equation that gives us and therefore, they kind of deserved it. And it is dehumanizing, it is vulgar, and it kills a lot of people made of the Imago Dei. And as Christians, we have an obligation, a sacred obligation to stand against that wherever it's found, whether it's in the Jew who is under um, you know, some kind of oppression of their own or, or found in, 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 in Auschwitz for crying out loud, right? Of course, we decry that and fight for their liberation. Or in this case, the Palestinian who is landlocked in Gaza and having bombs dropped on their head 24-7. Sorry, Yusuf, the floor is yours. Sorry to go on that little rant there, but my, I've been thinking about this for so long, I had to get it out. No, thank you so much, uh, because it brought to my my attention a very important question. You just asked, how many more mass shootings need to happen in the States for people to stand up and speak for their own victims and kill? Yeah. I think ne- people need to just uh, chew on this a lot. Uh, because uh, whenever you are out of enemies, hmm. you will start creating enemies from your own. Hmm. 
And that's what people actually don't understand. Uh, uh, because, yes, today and for long years, um, uh, you can study the whole idea of settler colonialism and settler colonial uh, ideology. Because for settler colonizers, such as what we see in the Turtle Island, the United States, in Palestine, or any other place, where you have these settlers come to a land and depopulate, ethnically cleanse the people from their land and claim to be indigenous to that land. That's the essence of settler colonialism. You have settlers who de-indigenize indigenous people mm. and claim to be indigenous. And later, they claim the religious, cultural, linguistic heritage of the indigenous people as theirs. Imagine that. So that's exactly what we see in Palestine. The falafel, the hummus, even the Palestinian kofiya, the Palestinian women, uh, tatris dress. Uh, Embroidery. Yeah. Now, yes, now claim to be like Israeli. Hmm. And uh, it's basic, it's a textbook uh, 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 tactics of settler colonialism. And in order for a settler colonial regime to succeed, in their settler colonial plan, and I need to make these repetitions very clear, hmm. is to succeed to erase the indigenous people. Unless, unless, and that's why there is a debate among scholars, uh, post-colonial scholars and settler colonial scholars on the case of Palestine and the post-1948 Israel. Uh, and the question is, is it really Israel a colonized regime or a settler colonial regime? Israel in 1948 land succeeded to become a settler colonial regime. However, the existence and the resilience of Palestinian indigenous people in the West Bank and Gaza made it impossible for the Israelis to succeed in establishing that settler colonial regime in the rest of the land. And that's why now we get to see uh, the play, the major play of settler colonial ideology, which dehumanizing, demonizing, uh, degrading the indigenous people, you know, because they need to be replaced with a higher race who can build a civilization. And that's what we heard before 1948. Palestinians are uncivilized, despite the fact that Palestinians had one of the highest rates of literacy and educated people in the entire Middle East. Uh, the Palestinian population didn't belong to the land of Palestine. They were Arab refugees who traveled to Palestine in order just to like uh, a Bedouin community who settled in certain parts of Palestine. But my family is an example. We've been living there for at least 900 years. I'm not talking about even the 1400 years, 900 years. So we are indigenous to Palestine, but in order for the Zionists to succeed in their aim, they had to follow the textbook of settler colonialism and uh, the extension of European colonial mentality and Orientalist uh, ideology, which degrade the indigenous people to the point where they, where it actually becomes a mandate to exterminate those people for the uh, well-being of the entire planet and the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what we hear uh, on the news, that now all the Gazan population are terrorists and worthy to be killed 
and exterminated because it's better for the colonial regime. It's better for Europe because it's coming after Europe after it's done with Israel, right? It's yes, it's coming yes. uh, to America. That's such a good point. Wow. Yeah, the, the, what is it, uh, Nikki wow. Haley, that said that the, the attack on Israel is an attack on the U.S., right? Like, there's no, there's no analysis otherwise. Can I just put something together really quick? Sorry for the audience out there. I'm trying to keep them uh, just really, you know, I, I'm trying to relate a lot of what you're saying to real world scenarios in their heads. So they understand like what, what exactly it is that you're saying, because you're saying such amazing things. What I just put together now, Yusuf, is I've, I've been hearing a lot, especially in these Christian nationalist spaces, they'll, they'll highlight um, um, moments of unrest in Europe, you know, where maybe a, a Muslim group of people uh, protest something or vice versa. Like this just happened in Ireland recently where there was a stabbing uh, by, I, I believe uh, the person was, was, was Muslim or something like that. And then uh, people in Ireland rioted over that and burned their own buses. And all of a sudden I'm watching Christian nationalists in America justify the, 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 the burning and, and destruction of property when it was the people of Ireland doing it and then saying, this is what, this is what happens right? This is what happens when you let these people inside of your society. So, so there's a connection here, I think, of the brown people, I'm using you know, just blunt language, but the brown people want to take over your society. They want to command and conquer. This is how Islam works, right? It's a conquering nation or a, a religion, excuse me. When in reality, I mean, of course, listen, of course we can find examples of that. And every religion has extremism, oh, yeah, obviously. Totally. But right, in right. reality, though, Christianity also has their own problems and, and it's full of, has a legacy full of colonization, right? So it's interesting to hear what you just said, where that is a uh, almost like a subconscious fear, right? Well, if, if, if Israel falls, so to speak, uh, which I'm not advocating for, by the way, but if it was, this is only the beginning of what then would happen to the US and to Europe where this you know Muslim invasion would happen. And before you know it, we're all you know reading the Quran every day. So it, I, I never put that together, but wow, that's powerful. I'll add something that's very important because you mentioned this. Uh, I think we are Christians for so long um, have assumed a role of supremacy as a divine granted gift to feel that we are better than everyone else. And our interpretation of our faith and the way we look to the entire world comes from a biblical uh, point of view. And God himself, the greater God, Yahweh, gave us that privilege. While the Mohammedan, that's the uh, medieval terms, right? Uh, Up almost to the last 150 years, the Muslims, are these uh, savages, uh, Bedouins, uh, illiterate, who only conquer because their religion teaches them so and expand and uh, dominate uh, the other. But in the last 60 days, I was chewing on something that intrigued me a lot because at the essence of the Muslim faith is God's kingdom. You know, they want the kingdom of God to expand in the whole world. And their understanding of the kingdom of God comes from uh, belief in the Prophet Muhammad and the Quran. How different are European Americans from them? Because for them, colonialism was one tools and means in order to expand the kingdom of God. Even violence was justified in order to do so. So how different are we how different are we? Because we are always know how to point fingers, but we are not self-critical of what we believe. And we have turned the kingdom of God into an empire that uses guns and weapons, uses an expansionist uh, 
eliminist uh, ideology rather than inclusive humanity that glorifies God. And this inclusive humanity, by the way, brings all people together, Muslim, Buddhist, Jews, into one new creation. And that's what God is after. However, I think uh, Christian evangelical nationalists confuse the kingdom of God with their capitalist idea of the empire. You know, this kingdom of God idea, it's not unique to Christianity. Um, and if you start really looking, you start to see some themes that make you concerned. Uh, you know, on, on purpose, we don't really compare uh, Christian nationalism to the, like, like the Taliban. I don't want to come across as Islamophobic for a lot of reasons. And for our own, our own audience, it's just not what I want to compare. But in this context, you know, it's like, uh, guys, ever thought about what some people are saying? Now, go compare it to what you've heard some of these people in their own extreme version of their own religion say and see if, if they're that far off. You know, they want a nation state. They want Christ to rule over all things. They want it in the constitution. They want to make sure. I mean, some people have gone so extreme as to say that gay people should be put to death. Women who get abortion should be put to death. Like, uh, you're not, guys, you're really tracking. I mean, you're on the path here. You're just calling it Christianity. What is up? This is Trip from the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast, and I am pumped to tell you about Project Amplify. That is something that the new evangelicals are up to. It's a new endeavor. And guess what? I've been a longtime supporter of TNE, and when I heard about Project Amplify, I'm like, oh, junk. That sounds great. Why? Why? Well, when Christianity shows up in the public square, I usually have a hard time associating its content with, I don't know, what Jesus said and did and endured and testified to in the one he called Abba. Well, if you want people that are deeply engaged in communicating in our current medium and you want to support it so that, so I don't know, maybe what pops up in your algorithm doesn't make you want to hurl and call Jesus and say, hey, hey, you need some new PR then uh, maybe you should be a member. Support what's going on at Project Amplify. I'm excited about it, so check it out. I, I want to get back to one thing. And, and Yusuf, you did this really well in your podcast with Daniel. Could you maybe give the audience a little, a little bit, you don't have to give us the whole thing, but you can if you want, the floor is yours, just kind of the history of how Hamas developed. I'm under the impression that it's way more complicated than one day people woke up and said, we're evil, horrible people who want to kill people. <laughs> you know, like it's just, it's not, it doesn't work out like that. Can you give some of the context of how Hamas was born um, and, 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 why we're, and why they did maybe what they did on October uh, 7th, I believe? Actually, this question uh, comes into continuation with what we are saying uh, from the beginning. Uh, because in order to understand Hamas at the beginnings of Hamas, it's a very critical to understand before Hamas. Because mm -hmm. the Palestinian suffering and the Israeli brutal colonization of Palestine uh, started 100 years uh, ago, as from 1917 onward. So for about 60 years, there were no Hamas. <laughs> Uh, and most of the Palestinians were either uh, Muslim liberals or uh, leftists. And in fact, most of the Palestinian armed resistance between 1948 up to 1987 was among between these two factions. And they had uh, some kind of collaboration under the PLO. Interestingly, by the way, and I think uh, many of your audience 
may be not uh, aware of this, major leaders of the PLO and the founders of those factions were Christians, were Palestinian Christians. Wow. They were the thinkers uh, of the national movement in Palestine. So for Israel, as a colonial regime, in order to establish a stronghold in the West Bank and Gaza and the rest of the Palestinian territory in order to succeed in its settler colonial uh, project was divide and conquer, which is the basic way as always. So in, in many ways, Israel has incentivized the establishment of a Muslim group, a Muslim faction that becomes the third option of the Palestinians. And it became that very critical of the liberals, the Muslim liberals, Fatah, and was very extremely critical of, of course, the communist leftists who don't atheist believe in God. Mm. In 1987, Hamas was established, and most of the people who started Hamas were actually Palestinian refugees or come from a Palestinian refugee families who were displaced in 1947 and weren't allowed to return to their homeland, which against the UN Resolution 194, which grants and protects the Palestinian right to return. And they were literally placed in refugee camps, relied on the bare minimum from the UNRWA. And this group of people saw that there is a failure from the PLO, as the PLO was about to get uh, into a peace talks with the Israeli government from 1988, 1989 onward to 1993 and the signing of uh, the Oslo Accord. So the Islamic party became kind of the third option and the third way militant religious uh, faction that aims to the liberation of Palestine. And 1988, uh, Hamas, more concretely established itself and wrote its first charter and which was later updated in 2017. And by the way, many of the people who quote Hamas charter actually don't know that Hamas charter changed from 1988 to 2017, just for the sake mm. of, of critical scholarship, I would say here, it's not only critical scholarship. Uh, and most of the people you see on the news saying oh, Hamas charter, they only refer to 1988, which already has been eradicated by Hamas itself and replaced by mm. 2017 one. So Hamas in 1993 rejected the Oslo process. And I would say not only Hamas did so, but many of the Palestinian scholars, such as Edward Said, the Palestinian American owned post-colonial critics and uh, literary critics, was uh, a professor at Columbia University in New York City. And many other Christian also scholars re rejected the Oslo Accord because they believe the Israelis have fabricated that peace agreement to justify and expand their colonization of Palestine. And we can see from 1993, 1994, up to 2004, after a few years after the second intifada, second Palestinian uprising, civil uprising, just to be very clear. Hamas built its legacy, built its repetition on the failure of the peace agreement between Israel and the PA. And who failed that peace agreement? I can't point a finger historically to Israel, who constantly expanded settlements against the agreement, uh, controlled the Palestinian 
economy, the tension of many Palestinian people. And by the way, there are Palestinians who are still imprisoned hostages in Israeli detention centers from 40 years ago before Oslo Accord even. Wow. Yes. So Hamas came to play a crucial part in 2006 and it played on a very important theme, which is uh, integrity and reformation. And for Palestinians who lived in Gaza and the West Bank and under the PA, the Palestinian Authority, and they have seen that Israel didn't grant them anything of their rights according to Oslo Agreement, didn't fulfill its part of the Oslo Agreement. So for many Palestinians, the PA felt like, um, let's say, a corrupt government that works or collaborates with the, the occupier and colonizer. So the other chance and the other uh, option they had was the Islamic reformist uh, that claims to have integrity and wants to actually bring liberation to the Palestinian people. And in, mm. a, in a democratic election, by the way, that's under the supervision of the United States, under the supervision of the EU, Palestinians elected the Islamic movement not for their radical ideas, mm. but for their promise to reform the Palestinian government and society. And afterward, Hamas didn't have any chance, didn't have any chance to actually rule over or take its government. Because shortly after, the United States, Europe, Israel declared Hamas as a terrorist organization and they blocked Gaza. And of course, they played a very important role in the division between the, P the PA and Hamas in 2006 and the end of 2006. Mm. So just we need to keep uh, these histories in mind when we study uh, Hamas. Just to make it very clear, I'm Palestinian Christian. I cannot be Hamas. <laughs> uh, right. I believe in the right of nonviolent resistance. So I reject mm -hmm. any form of violent resistance. It's not part of my faith. So I disagree. I completely disapprove any kind of, of violence. But I also encourage people to be critical about what they hear and they listen and to go and read and study uh, what's going on uh, what's went on throughout history and what's going on right now. Yeah. Daniel, do you want to add anything to that? I can't really add anything um, more intelligent and thoughtful than that. <laughs> no but offense, I, would, um, I can't blame you. I used this great. So I would just add like, a small comment. This morning I was uh, chatting with a friend of mine from Gaza. He's a student here at Notre Dame. Um, he, two weeks ago, his sister was mm. killed um, by an Israeli strike. In, in Rafah, in the south, not the north, in the south, where supposedly Palestinians would be safe. So I was, I, he told me the news a few days ago, and I was like traumatized and, and angry. And I today and I had coffee with him, and I asked him, like, so his family is not politi political at all. His his doctor, his dad is an engineer. His mom is is a doctor. His two brothers are right now in Gaza, in the south, working at a clinic. One at a refugee clinic, and one at a hospital in in Rafah. So. And I asked him, like, point blank, like, blank, like, what do you think about Hamas right now? Like, especially because he just lost his sister, who was 26, wasn't married. Jeez. And she was, she basically went to the balcony to, like, check on the clothes in the clothes line. And there was a rocket that dropped um, and then killed her. Um, 
And I ask him, like, what, like, how do you feel, like, about Hamas? Like, how is how is support for Hamas, or what does that look like? And and he's and he he basically is like, like, what should we do? Like, like, what what is what's the option we have as Palestinians? Whenever being attacked like this, mm. uh, who's 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 going to defend us? And he he was telling me there was like, I saw this, I saw this actually this morning. He told me about it before I saw it. There was like footage of men in Gaza right now that are kind of stripped naked and like laying on the on the ground and like would have the Israeli soldiers surrounding them, like tens of them. And he was like, look at the humiliation we have to deal with. Look at all the like the killing and the bombing. Like and he was like, I reject Hamas. I'm not I'm not part of it at all. But like for him as someone who's been so traumatized and so angry and so broken. Like his only response is like, "What do you, what do you, what do you think we should do?" <laughs> and and that's kind of the thing that uh, right. I don't know if you kind of have been part of this conversation, Tim. Uh, why do pro-Palestine people in the West refuse to condemn Hamas? Yeah, this is like I hear the this first all the question time. Question that that Pierce Morgan and others like, why don't you condemn Hamas? And like, and and just kind of listening to him, it's like it like dawned upon me, like when you. When no one is condemning what Israel has been doing, when 75 years of oppression of the Palestinians, of systemic structural violence, and 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 then you feel that you are not even considered a human, mm. but then you are kind of now expected to fall into this paradigm and way of thinking that kind of fits into the, to be acceptable to those who dehumanized you and ignored you and now you need to like recognize what they're saying and now you have to agree mm. with them so so it kind of makes me it makes me understand why this is like a hard issue it's like well do you do you condemn apartheid that i've been facing do you condemn the occupation do you condemn israel as a racist you know supremacist state right like if you do that, then yeah, like we can talk about Hamas and the, the background of Hamas and how this is unacceptable and wrong. And um, but that's kind of the thing. If you're at and, and he was like and he was like I I'm not in it. And he's there's an expression in Arabic I can't translate it uh, well. But basically, if your hands are in cold water, they're not. It's different to if you have your hands are in cold water or if your hands are in hot in, in fire, mm. right? If your hands are in fire, of course you're gonna rage. Right. But if you if you're cool and chill, you know, sitting here in the US, of course you're gonna pontificate and be critical and condemn and so on. Yeah. So all of this is and and like what we're trying to tell, like what Yusuf has done so like well, like we have to understand this history of trauma and of hurt and and how hurt people hurt people and how the oppressed could easily become the oppressor. And I think we saw this, I think we're seeing this in Israel, this kind of vindictive, kind of vengeful nature of what's happening. And you, you kind of mentioned this, Tim, you know, 7,000 children. And, and like, it's so hard for us to like um, minimize when we 7,000 people, 7,000 as a number. We're talking about like a mass death where like an innocent child was killed 7,000 times. You know, this is not just 7,000, you know, as a number. This is like one individual was killed once, was killed twice, yeah. you know, was killed three times, seven times, 7,000 times. Um, but that's, I mean, but that's kind of the language. Like if we focus so much on on Hamas and like blaming Hamas and talking about, you know, how evil they are, it's so easy for us to ignore the trauma and the hurt of the, of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then put in a place where the only thing that is rational for them, the only thing that is consistent for them, is to do something about it. Um, and I, I'm and I'm convinced. Like when you kill seventeen thousand people, this is like, this is the best kind of campaign for Hamas, right? Like you're creating a hundred thousand 
more militants right yeah. now. You know, this right. is like a recruitment campaign. Like, so Israel is not really interested in peace. Israel is not really interested in eliminating Hamas. They might say they might kill the 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 you know he's like the director of the, of, of Hamas, the leader of Hamas. But you're creating a whole generation and a whole population of traumatized, oppressed people who find it super consistent and supernatural, super logical for them to carry yeah. arms. The radical position of myself and Yusuf and other Palestinians, and not just Christians, is to say, well, this is fundamentally the issue. Right. That the dehumanization of people, the violence committed against people, is inherently, naturally going to lead to violence. And we need to break away from that cycle of violence and vengefulness yeah. and pursue justice and peace. And if we pursue justice... Perhaps there's no need to pick up arms. Yes. Perhaps if we turn your, if you establish just justice, maybe you can, you know, turn your swords into plowshares, mm. you know, and like and bring about that kingdom of God, the kingdom of justice. Yes. But if if you have the Christians, you know, in the U.S. who keep using using that warmongering, belligerent, racist language, of course they're not gonna, they're not part of the the solution. Right. They're not they're not following the gospel of Jesus. They're following the 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 bad news of of death right. and of you know and the, and the devil if you want to use that kind of Christian yeah, language yeah. who who's you know the, the purpose of devil of that idea of the devil is of death and of destruction and yeah. and Christians so called Christians are are like the tools that give power to that death and violence and and pain and, and so on yeah and so forth. well I mean just look at I mean again audience if you want another example of how bombing people for years doesn't really fix the problem look at Afghanistan. Right. Look at the the so-called war on terror. Well, we were in we were in the Middle East, in Iraq, and in Afghanistan for over a decade, and um, it didn't work. It it just it doesn't work. Repeating cycles of chaos breeds more cycles of chaos. Period. Um, And I even think about you know, and this is a question I wanted to get to. And um, again, both of you, I thank you so much for your time for spending some time with me here. You know, I I was reading an article by the Guardian um, that um, the IDF, that's Israeli um, Israel Defense Force, they they're they're using AI, they're using artificial intelligence. They it's code name called the Gospel, and it's being used to target uh, targets. They they call it targets, but the military said. They're not being surgical. That's an actual quote in The Guardian, that they're not being surgical. And we, I mean, frankly, no shit. Like, no shit, you're not being surgical. I mean, just take a look at what's happening. You know, the kids are are literally being blown to smithereens. Um, and it's like, the more I think about, and again, I, I think that so much of my perspective has shifted over even the past few months um, on this, you know, it's very clear to me that Israel has an, an insanely powerful military. It's funded by the U.S. and by other countries. They have incredibly high-tech capabilities. They're using AI to carpet bomb, um, quote-unquote, targets that are killing children. They're calling it the gospel. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, you you both – you called this, I think, at some point, you know, a, a war – I don't really think it's a war. I mean, I don't, you know, and I get this in my DMs. Well, this is, this is wartime. Um, I don't think we're talking about two sovereign nations going at war here. Uh, there's one nation, then there's one people group who's underneath the thumb of that, of, of that nation who's currently being carpet bombed. And again, I, I don't mean to speak, you know, crassly here, but they're essentially fighting back with pea shooters. And we're calling this somehow some kind of war. I, I, again, audience, I'm not here to justify what Hamas did or say that, you know, uh, one death is, is, is less valuable than another death. Of course, they're all terrible. They're all bad things. But to try and make it seem like, you know, this is, I don't know, the US versus Russia uh, just is not the situation. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Uh, let me start here with a disclaimer. 
Okay. Every single life matters. Every single life of an Israeli soldier who's shooting a Palestinian and killing Palestinian families or a Hamas militant uh, personnel are all redeemable, are all created in the image of God and live in a broken world. Just to make this very clear, so every single person created in the image of God is worthy of dignity and to live the life that was given to them. Secondly, because you mentioned uh, the AI weapon, the gospel, it's there is even worse. Uh, today I was talking to people in Gaza, actually, who are sheltering at the uh, St. Porfirius Orthodox Church for the last 58, 59 days. And while the Israeli airstrikes are bombarding their neighborhood literally few feet away, they were hearing on the news that 75 evangelicals were at the borders of Gaza praying and supporting the Israeli military. Jeez. Can you imagine that? You have a mm. Christian community sheltering at a church under the heavy bombardment of the Israeli Air Force, hearing on the news that their brothers and sisters in Christ supposedly are actually on the other side of the border supporting their aggressors. So for me, uh, if Israel calls the uh, weapon the gospel or it calls it uh, uh, Joshua or, or, or even it, if it calls it Jesus, it doesn't matter. Hmm. Because what we have seen for the last hundred years, and this is part of the colonial experience, that the Bible and faith uh, have been weaponized against the indigenous people, including those who carry the same faith. Yeah. Uh, so for us Palestinian Christians, and here I, I can bring up uh, Naim Atik, uh, the Palestinian theologian, and he's the founder, founding father of Palestinian liberation theology in 1989. He talks about three kind of crises that Palestinians went through in Nakba, 1948 catastrophe. And I will highlight only one of them, which is the religious Nakba, the religious catastrophe and a crisis for Palestinian Christians. Because suddenly after 1948, they feel that the Bible that they carried, they protected, uh, and they prayed through for 2,000 years, have been weaponized against them and was used as a, a deed to claim the land for the colonizers. Mm. And uh, f actually, in fact, uh, to some extent, the extended time of in the past 75 years, some churches in Palestine replaced the, the term Israel and some of the uh, Psalms with Jacob, because for people, it was very painful to read a Psalm of comfort and consolation that has a word Israel with that. Hmm. And this is the crisis of faith that actually now we get to see and experience uh, again. When the good news, the gospel is now sound of death and destruction to many people. Yeah. And uh, I feel like really confused because we can see, and I personally know many of my beloved uh, Christian evangelicals in the West who are Bible loving, Christ believing, 
uh, zealots to the Christian faith yeah. are funding in many ways and uh, providing the justification and the theology for the Israeli colonial regime and its genocide against the Palestinian people. And last night, before I sleep, I was writing a confession to my evangelical brothers and sisters, and I, I decided not to post it. Because we feel betrayed to the strongest meaning of the word by our Christian brothers and sisters. And we feel that we were abused by them in many ways. Because, yes, it's good to have a Palestinian Christian brother, but you don't care about our suffering and our narrative and our theology and our story. Mm. Um, and to be honest, yeah, I think we are fed up with the Zionist evangelical Christianity because you mm. cannot reconcile Zionism and the gospel. You cannot reconcile racism and uh, and other form of of national ideologies with the kingdom of God and the gospel, and we refuse that our God is being imprisoned in that colonial ideology, and we think that God now needs to be liberated. The Bible needs to be liberated and redeemed from those ideologies and who are redeeming the Bible, who are redeeming God, I think Palestinian Christians, because they insist, despite their hurt, despite the pain and the rage and the anger, we refuse to retreat to our emotional uh, desire to revenge. We refuse hmm. to call for the extermination of our enemies. But in the midst of all that pain, we are seeing God's imprint on our neighbors, and we refuse to call mm. them enemies. These are our neighbors. That mm. in our way to liberate ourselves, we want to liberate them as well. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's powerful. There's just no way around it. And I, I think about how um, it just it, it blows my mind that I grew up in an evangelical culture where you know, they waged war on Pokemon cards and they waged war on the liberals and they waged war on the secular music and the rock stars and, you know, the queer people. And they were so sensitive, right? They were so like angry about everything. Um, and they had no right to be. Um, it was, it's just hogwash for so many reasons. And then here I am talking to Two people who, I mean, frankly, on a, I think on a logic and reason level, have every right to want to take up arms and fight back. Who have every right to say our enemies have to be defeated. Like you, I, I think you have you have legitimate reasons. I, I even as a Christian would be like, well, it's not my ethic, but who am I as the as the white guy in New Jersey to tell you how to think about this stuff? And your take is, we feel the emotional pull to participate in that cycle of chaos. But our conviction of our faith tells us otherwise. And for us to be radical Christians means that we have to advocate for nonviolent resistance wherever possible. And I just want the audience to sit with that for a minute and to think about the, the difference of, of this Christian expression compared to what we grew up in. You know, where the biggest concerns were if a girl's shirt was too low or something so dumb, like so stupid. And this was like our whole world. 
And here I am talking to two people who have a lot of reasons to be, and I'm sure who are, you know, but have a lot of reasons not only to be angry, but also to to want to uh, fight for the liberation of their people. And the and the response is so much more loving. And it just, man, it just, ugh, this is not about evangelicalism. This is about you guys, but it just, it just blows my mind sometimes to think about, about what was prioritized in my evangelical tradition as being a faithful Jesus follower. And then now watching so many of the same people really find ways to either justify or excuse or to tolerate, um, you know, the, the, the mass, um, bombing of civilian populations that is claiming the lives of, of thousands of children. So, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, one of my kind of, I guess, a couple of final questions here and we'll get wrapped up. And again, I appreciate you guys spending this time with me. I think where I think where I'm at so often is like on a pragmatic level, you know, what what, what is the, is there a solution here? You know, I, I feel like we're looking at a, a, um, a current state of something that just seems it's so tangled. There's so many layers, decades of history, decades of legitimate oppression, uh, decades of death. I mean, it, it's just so, it's just so enmeshed. And, you know, I don't foresee uh, Israel going anywhere. I don't foresee Palestinians going anywhere. Um, I, I think all three of us as Christians can say, we don't want any more bloodshed. We don't want people killing each other for, for, for control of land. So from, from your vantage point, are, is there a, is there a two state solution? Is it, is it one integrated state who has to do what? I mean, is there a way forward in, in a situation that just looks so, um, grim, uh, and frustrating to watch happen in real time and feel power, powerless to do anything about it? Like what, what, what are some answers or if there are any? I can I can take a stab at that. I wanted to talk more about uh, American evangelicalism <laughs> and the support for war, okay. but we can try to think of something constructive, perhaps. But I but I think there's something we need to keep like we need to be self-critical as yeah. as, as Christians about how um, complicit Christians in the West yes. are in all of this. Whether it's the political candidates, whether it's the the devout Catholic in the White House, or it's the devout Christians in Congress, and if it wasn't for them. This would not be the mm. case. Like my my friend wouldn't have been killed, or my friend's um, sister would not have been killed if it wasn't for Christians. This is not a conflict between Jews and Muslims. This is a conflict. This is a a war that is supported by Christians, yeah. and this is something that is very frustrating to me. It's like, uh, you know, I hear this from Christians here, and it just like makes me want to just like vomit. It's like, oh, if only Muslims and Jews get to know Jesus, yeah. everything is gonna be fine. They just do not know Jesus. They just have hatred and violence and and venge and vengefulness. And if just they know Jesus, everything is going to be hunky dory. Or or use that kind of end times, you know, like language which which is so hurtful and dismissive. It's going to be fine when Jesus comes back. So like, it sucks to suffer, but you know, he he's going to come back. So don't worry about it. Like, um, and both of these positions are super problematic. Like. Christians in the West are the ones who are making this happen. It is Christians who write articles, who use the war, the language of just war theory. We talked about this, Tim, last yeah. time. You know, ethicists and theologians, we, you know, just war theory, Israel has a right to defend itself. We're giving the what um, Palestinian theologian says, the software for the hardware of this really like oppression. We're giving the legitimacy, the language, the good Christian language to justify this. Christians were like in the Gospel Coalition and, and other places write, wrote, wrote like, these are the Amalekites. This is the spirit of Amalek. 
And then two days later, Netanyahu quotes the same I know, thing. I know. And talking about, you know, First Samuel 15, when it talks about killing the Amalekites and their wives and their children and their elderly and their animals. And this is the, like, you know, Christians, Bible-believing Christians are making like, is, are what giving that backing, that theological intellectual backing, but also financial backing, also military political backing and commerce. Yeah. So this is not Hamas. Uh, this is not Hamas and Israel. Like seriously, mm-hmm. this is not Muslims and Jews. This is a fundamentally a Western, specifically an American Christian problem. If it wasn't for that, none of this would mm-hmm. exist. If it wasn't for American national interests, like an interest in keeping uh, Israel empowered, keeping the Palestinians divided, weakening the Middle East, none of this would exist. Mm. This is fundamentally driven by what Yusuf is, keeps emphasizing, the colonial kind of undergirding kind of ideology here. Mm. But it's, it's completely antithetical to the gospel, even though it is supported by Christians. Yeah. And that's kind of, and right now, Tim, like if you ask me what is the solution, I don't have an answer for yeah. that. Like I can tell you, my, my solution is a one state solution. Both people live in dignity, Jews and Muslims and Christians uh, live, live in peace together. I mean, that's kind of my ideal situation where everyone lives, lives in harmony, everyone's dignity and worth and freedom is guaranteed. But if we're not going to deal with the core issue, which is this, violent nasty weaponization of the bible dehumanization of the of the mm. of the palestinians we cannot even start to think about that solution we have to be, that we have to examine how our theology how zionist christian zionism mm. how dispensationalism yes, that are produced yes. and are made up in this cul- culture here here in the us and this is like for me like i'm lamenting i'm griefing i feel like i live in enemy territory mm. here where it is the the Christian president, the Christian Congress people, the media, the the church leaders who are who are supporting death and war and bloodshed in the name of the Bible. So I I cannot like I'm not gonna talk to you about I'm not gonna pontificate about political solutions mm-hmm. right now. It's we're lamenting, we're grieving. Right now, God, we're saying this. God is under the rubble. Yes. We buried yes. God in Gaza, and we weaponized the Bible. And in in Bethlehem, we ca- there's no Christmas like we there is no I don't know if you heard this like Christmas is cancelled in Bethlehem. We're not celebrating Christmas, like um, um, we're like there's no celebration. What what can we talk about here? There's a, we're, people are dying. Like um, we're grieving. We're 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 mourning. We're in perpetual mourning right now as Palestinians and especially as Palestinian Christians. But fundamentally, our we're looking at our brothers. Those those who are call themselves our siblings in the faith, our brothers and sisters, and we're saying you need to repent. Mm. You need to repent of this warmongering and bloodthirsty ideology that gives that um, that empowers Israel uh, to be filled with anger and and bloodthirst to kill the Palestinians. Mm. And we need to have that conversation. This is not about a political conversation right now for me. This is a theological conversation, and and Christians in the West need to start repenting, mm. and because God's judgment is coming, like to use that like very like graphic language, but God is gonna judge the church of our complicity and racism and violence and, and abuse and dehumanization. And we need to repent before it's too late, I think. Uh, well, yeah. uh, Daniel, I, I would second, uh, I would second on your, your point here. Damn. Um, and uh, I want to take it uh, a bit further uh, and maybe make it in two main points. <laughs> I think even if Palestinians want to go for uh, one state or two state, who stands between us are conservative fundamentalist evangelicals in the states. Even those who are the ones who support the Zionist narrative that rejects 
the withdrawal of Israeli Zionist settlers from the West Bank, for example. Those are the ones who refuse uh, to give the Palestinians the East Jerusalem as uh, uh, the capital for their future state. They are the ones who are in between the Palestinians and Israelis for their pursuit of of, uh, living together and uh, prosper as two states or even one state. So just to make this very clear, based on some theological interpretation of the end days prophecies, evangelicals are standing in between the Palestinians and Israelis. And let me be very frank here. What we see in the West is theological terrorism. And it's much worse than actual bloody terrorism. And I've been thinking about Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And God is calling out Cain for his ideas that runs it through his mind, right, to kill his brother. And this whole narrative shows us how ideology is very dangerous. Because Christian Zionism, it's not a theology. There is no theo in their logic. Okay, it's an ideology, ideology that is built on destruction and domination of the other. It's causing terror for other groups of people just to fulfill certain ideas about the end times. So it it might help just to ponder around this idea when it comes to the Palestinian uh, cause for liberation and our desire and aspiration to have our own nationhood. The second point, which breaks my heart, that we always as Palestinians looked at as and expected to give hope and to give solution to something that we have nothing to do with. Like, we are always called to give hope while we are the ones that's supposed to be embraced with our pain and suffering. You know, we are mm. we are called to inspire others and expected to inspire others uh, from the comfort, mm. you know, of their churches. And uh, that's what we have seen. And we are always expected to give a solution, although, in fact, the colonizers are the ones who are denying every possible solution for the last 75 years or even 100 years. And mm. these issues we need to deal with. We need to deal with this terror, theology of terror that has been taking over many minds and many uh, churches and causing serious harm and causing genocide in Palestine right now. And understand that uh, in order for Palestinians actually to be the hope and to have a prospect for the future, they need someone to to support that idea instead of standing uh, as a stumbling stone between the Palestinians and their future uh, hope for liberation. Yeah, thank you. Wow, that's important. And I thank you for sharing it. Maybe a way to ask, uh, maybe a, a final question here, and then we can. You know, if I left anything that you left, that, if I left, if I didn't ask you a question you wanted to answer, you of course you can talk after this. There are probably a lot of people out there who are listening and going, 
what can I do? Like, do I, do I petition my government? Do I start calling my representatives? Do I sign a petition? Do I share stuff? If there are people out there listening who are like, heard, Daniel and Yusuf, I hear you. You're right. It's a problem. I want to help you part of the solution. Um, are there ways that off the top of your head, people can help without doing harm? Are there ways that might be well-intentioned, but could be harmful? Any insight on just best ways that people like myself, right? I mean, I, here I am, uh, the new evangelicals trying to do our best to work on my own decolonization, as well as trying to lift up and, and just have a platform where other voices can speak. Um, what are some ways that, that folks can can help be part of amplifying these messages and helping to to stop the violence, even though the, we're over here you know, in America? What, what, what can we do? I have so many ideas. There's a lot you can okay, do. Okay, great. Uh, um, I would just like, I would preface, if you're listening to this and you're in the West, you're one of the most privileged, uh, powerful, free person to do so many things. You know, so like, just, you know, like we we you know, used to we used to be critical of privilege and white privilege. Like, hey, own it, use it well. <laughs> like, we're not saying give up your privilege. It's like, thank God for that, those chances and that freedom and that affluency and those resources, use them well. And it is like, you, like, you know, you have the talents, you've, you've been given one talent or two talents and five talents. Are you going to bury that mm-hmm. talent or are you going to yeah. use it? So just as from the get go, you have a lot you can do. So, okay, what can you do practically? Fundamentally, the least of your faith is to pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's kind of, prayer has become like a cop-out. Okay, well, I'm not, I don't want to do anything that is kind of going to, I'm going to sacrifice, but I'll, I'll sacrifice a minute to pray for a ceasefire. If this is how you do it, if this is, this is how your faith works, pray, at least pray. But, but I want you to say, well, no, the prayer is the beginning of the work. Mm. Our faith is not prayer. We're not. We're not in monasteries. Even those in monasteries, they, they, they harvest the land. They, they build pottery. They, they write manuscripts. Right. So you're not. You're not a monk. Even if you're a monk, you have to do some work. Mm. But there's a lot you can do. First, fundamentally, you need to educate yourself. It is not my job and Yusuf's job to do your homework yes. for you. We're gonna help you. We, we have this conversation. And we've referenced some names. We dropped some names. I'm, we're going to provide, Tim, I'm going to send you this resource packet Please. that I put together yes. with incredible resources, theology, history, uh, podcasts, uh, documentaries, movies. Just watch a movie, you know, a Palestinian and Israeli and otherwise, you know. So you can educate yourself. So like, thirdly, you can also think of using your resources and your, your, your money I mean, this is like we're kind of we have a very uncomfortable relationship with money as evangelicals, yeah. but you can do a lot of good in Gaza right now. You can, we can give you the names of many organizations that uh, provide immediate help right now in Gaza through the UN and other organizations and the Red Cross and what have you. I think fourth and importantly, you need to be you need to be activated. You need to like you don't want to be an activist. Fine, if that language you know, doesn't work for you, but you need to do something, whether it's to reach out to your representative, which might not something you would like to do. It's kind of weird. Actually, I don't think it's that beneficial. Like we tried it with this war and they just kind of give you that, like, um, the that same like response. Spoiler, like, response. You Thank you for reaching out. Yeah. 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 yeah but like, no, but like, we're not going to listen mm, to you. Right. Um, but so you can do that. You can use your social media accounts to educate people. You can share this podcast with people. Like, you know, sharing a podcast it takes little of your time, but it could have an impact on so many people. Yeah. Not to like do some, you know, shameless plugging for Tim here for the new evangelicals. Share the new evangelicals <laughs> with people, you know. Uh, <laughs> but also like talk to your, ch- to your circles of influence, your family, your friends, your church community, your pastor, 
who's like, I don't know your pastor, but I'm almost certain he's part of the problem. <laughs> Talk with your pastor. Think of creative ways to to do something proactive. In the resource packet, I'm going to share, Tim, I have some, I'll put some like specific examples of resources and ways that they can connect and, and like mobilize people. But there's a lot that you can do. And last thing, and I, sorry if you, if I, if I took all the ideas from you, <laughs> the last thing you can do is also visit Palestine. We, there's a, we have a, um, a beloved, uh, the founder of Bethlehem Bible College, he keeps saying, come and see and go and tell. Come and see life in Palestine. Come and see the living stones of Palestine. Come and see the church in, in Palestine. Go to the refugee camp. See what life is like. And then you can go and and then and then tell people about it. So I think that you come, this kind of incarnational attitude that you come to be with people, the Jesus attitude where he came to be with the lowly of the lowly, lowliest, the weak and the marginalized and poor, that's your duty. And and you know and so I think it's something that many Christians can do to go to spend time in Palestine and spend time in Bethlehem and what have you. Um, so yeah, this like there are so many practical things you can do. Uh, I can also recommend the um, Yusuf mentioned this, the Shepherd's Society, which is the kind of nonprofit arm of the Bethlehem Bible College, where you can give to Christian ministries that are doing work in Gaza right now. So, but I can stop here, but there's plenty you can do. Mm. And I'm sure there's a lot of like ways you can use your skills, your talents, your uh, vocation to do something creative and new that I haven't thought about. And please think creatively. Mm. Uh, and that was what is called that creative resistance. Like think of creative ways to resist evil. And that's gonna some, some of the ways. I don't know, do you have more, do you have more thoughts, Yusuf, on, on what, what they can do? Um, radical commitment to the evangelon to the good news of the gospel. Mm. Uh, I think if we are radically follower of Jesus on every tiny bit of his teaching, not erasing that sermon on the mount because Jesus looks weak, or that will make us look weak, then everything will change. And by the way, um, as, as a Christian and as a Palestinian Christian, uh, which sometimes what I say seems idealistic, right? It's utopia. Mm. But I think the message of Christ is all about idealism and utopia. The kingdom of God is the ideal. The kingdom of God, the harmony and diversity of all creation, people from every tongue and nation coming together as one great family is the good news. And that's what we need to see in our lives and in our country as Palestine, but also from the church. So radical commitment to Jesus and all his teachings uh, will help actually make Palestinian future much better and will restore humanity to the Palestinians as well as the other people. Uh, um, definitely, I, I, I conquer what Daniel said. Uh, Ascending to representatives seems uh, unhelpful because there's AI tools now to auto-respond, right? And just uh, they completely <laughs> ignorant about the Palestinian reality because of their ideological, political reasons. But I will say that people have the power. I think people sometimes miss that, that government works for us and we should retain 
the power and hold our governments accountable. And you said that uh, the Israeli regime is the one is attacking Gaza right now. That's not completely true, by the way. Uh, the American army and American militias are helping the Israeli army on the ground. Uh, and you have the British uh, aerial force also are helping the Israel. So you have three greatest nations, three of the greatest nations of the earth are fighting against a small hmm. piece hmm. of land with the majority of civilian unarmed population. And what people need to do is, right, protest. Protest. And uh, what I call for protest is not like uh, to be any violent, uh, nonviolent creative protest that's only a prayer, and prayer is loud. I, I wish that people can, 100,000 people can walk into Washington and they only pray, mm. pray for a ceasefire and pray for the liberation of Palestine. And I think prayer has the power when people take it seriously. And uh, prayer is activated through faith. And faith has to produce fruits. And the fruits is something tangible and we can see it. Wow. Um, Daniel and Yusuf, I can't thank you enough for taking almost two hours out of your day to talk to me in the audience. It means the world. Um, Daniel, please do send me that document. If you can make it like uh, maybe some kind of public link where I can share it in the show notes so folks can just click it and see it, that would be great. Right. Yeah. And I'll try and have that. in. I mean, you, the audience knows I'm notoriously bad with my show notes. I'll say things and promise the world in the episode, then there's nothing there. But I really want to make sure that I, I get this. So if you can send that to me sometime this week before I get this one out, that would be great. And, um, you know, let's obviously keep in touch and keep the conversation going and however we can help the platform and and uh, community of TNE is at your disposal to help amplify your messages and, and, and get the word out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.